electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Jim Cramer and David Faber. We are moments away from the Fed chair speaking to the Jackson Hole Symposium, conducted virtually. One of the most important speeches of the quarter, maybe the year, and we will bring it to you live. There's a look at the feed they're giving us in the meantime. Meanwhile, futures are flat. Q2 GDP revised slightly higher. Claims, although above a million, edged down week on week. And oil close to a five-month high on Hurricane Laura. Uh, Jim, uh, one of those, uh, every now and then, we get a day that is truly consequential, and that certainly fits at least the expectations for Powell's speech. Yeah, I wish that we hadn't come in so hot. I mean, when you have a company that gains $50 billion in one day, Salesforce, when you have a tremendous number of NASDAQ stocks that have just kind of out of control of the upside is what I would say. You don't want to have anything that could disrupt that. So I think it's definitely heightened. I'm glad we're covering every minute of it. Uh, David, you know that this is a day that we would normally be talking about Abbott Labs and we'd be talking about the mysterious TikTok mayor issue, which are both huge stories. But no, we have to defer yeah, to Jay Powell. We do. We have to defer to Powell. We have to continue to, uh, you know, try and understand what the Fed balance sheet is going to look like with that, what, three trillion that's already been added to it, which is really a staggering sum, uh, guys. And, you know, Jim, your point, of course, is well taken. I mean, yesterday, Salesforce, I've, I've rarely seen anything like that move. Yes, they were extraordinarily strong numbers, but wow. And then even names like Facebook, to your point. Yeah. Up, what was it, 8% yesterday, Jim? Yeah, on a fight with Apple. Um, what did I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is that good news? I didn't think so. No, it's not. And that's why yesterday was really strange action, David. It's almost the kind of it's like desperately desperate to get long ahead of September, a terrible month. I I thought yesterday's action was quizzical. And I I don't mean that necessarily in a negative way. Just in like I've never seen it before. Carl, when we have these stocks, big cap stocks that are up huge on nothing, well, could they go down huge on something? And and that would be I'm not a bear, but. I mean, what say what happened, pal? Says, you know what? There's a lot of issuance and things have gotten much better. Then, I mean, the whole day is going to be it's going to be like the weather out. I mean, gloomy. Well, uh, to your point about August, Jim, Dow on pace for the best August since 1984. S&P best August since 86. Nasdaq since 2000. And we know, Jim, that August typically is not that great. LPL had a great statistic uh, saying the last two times that August was up six plus September was down five in Ooh. 2000 and down eight five in 96. So is there going to be payback? Well, uh, I was I got out of the Goldman program in 1984 in August. <clears throat> and it was just I just said I had the magic touch. I'm brilliant. Now, it turned out it was like the best August ever. OK, so maybe it wasn't brilliant. But but I, I do think that people have to take something off. I mean, I, I was going back and forth with Mark Benioff last night. I mean, 50 billion. I mean, I think it, every Mark surprised. I mean. Uh, no one. There are very few people, and I, David, I say this very rarely, but there are very few people at the beginning of the day like a stock. And at the end of the day, 
it's harder to like because it's move. It had a takeover like <laughs> move, David. It was like Salesforce got it, a bid from Microsoft. Did. No, I mean, it, you know, there's no doubt about it. It was extraordinary, uh, and it's worth worth s- sort of focusing on again. A 25 percent increase in the company's market value. We're not talking about some small biotech here that got a big piece of news. We're talking about a giant company that added 50 billion in market cap to what was already a 200 billion dollar market value. Uh, no, it was stunning, absolutely stunning, Jim. Um, and I think to the point that you're trying to make is it goes to sort of a speculative nature of this market that we've seen. We love to see more participation. We have made the point many times that there are people who, who may not understand a lot, but they understand enough. But wow, uh, that name, at least there was news behind it. Right. You know, when I look at some of the other moves without any news whatsoever, and I can't help but sort of come back to that period of time 22 years ago, where we sit there in the morning with similar questions. Now, I disagree, David, because if you remember 22 years mm. ago, you usually had positive or no news that moved things up. We had negative news <laughs> on Facebook. Was, I mean, to me, this Apple versus Facebook fight is huge. OK, gigantic for the future of apps. And Facebook gets its face slapped. So what does it go up? 22 points. Carl, you know, there has to be some. This is not Disney World, which had numbers that are down 76 percent. I mean, it, it, this is not it's not a video game. It's not Grand, it's not Grand Theft Stock Market. Nope. There, there's got to no, be some reason. No, but, <laughs> but I mean, if we're going to if we're going to continue to make, uh, like you know, analogs to 2000, NDX is 28 percent above the 200 day. And in, uh, in 2000, it got into the 60s, right? 60 percent above. So although we're in rarefied air, Jim, uh, you could argue we're not close to those euphoric levels that we saw 22 years ago. Well, it, that, that's a very good point. And I also kind of come back to I know we've got. I absolutely understand that we have the uh, drone pal, but I've been working all night. Uh, and you know that because you follow my tweets and all morning on the Abbott, the Abbott test. And I think that we would be talking about buying every single airline stock today, no matter what, because we're going to fly again because the person next to you is going to have been tested and you'll been tested. And there isn't any way to get on a plane if, if, if you're 15 minute test and, and, and test positive. You're going to be blocked. I downloaded the app this morning and the app is very interesting. It stops you with the QRS code if you have positive. You just can't get on the plane, which means that everybody on the plane. Uh, well, they just let's just say they're safe. So I would buy any airline stock today. And I, I hate the airline stocks. David, you know, the airlines companies are back to their old ways and not making any money. But, you know, I I take a cruise, Guys, too. Uh, let me interrupt you because I think we're getting the Fed chair starting maybe a tad early. Let's take a look. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Monetary policy framework. Earlier today, we released a revised statement on longer-run goals and monetary policy strategy, a document that lays out our goals, articulates our framework for monetary policy, and serves as the foundation for our policy actions. Today, I will discuss our review the changes in the economy that motivated us to undertake it, and our revised statement, which encapsulates the main conclusions of the review. 
began this public review in early 2019 to assess the monetary policy strategy tools and communications that would best foster achievement of our congressionally assigned goals of minimum employment and price stability over the years ahead in service to the American people. Because the economy is always evolving, the FOMC's strategy for achieving its goals, our policy framework, must adapt to meet the new challenges that arise. Thirty years ago, the biggest problem our economy faced was high inflation. The great inflation demanded a clear focus on restoring the credibility of the FOMC's commitment to price stability. Chair Paul Volcker brought that focus to bear, and the Volcker disinflation, with the continuing stewardship of Alan Greenspan, led to the stabilization of inflation and inflation expectations in the 1990s at around 2%. The monetary policies of the Volcker era laid the foundation for a long period of economic stability known as the Great Moderation. This new era brought new challenges to the conduct of monetary policy. Before the Great Moderation, expansions typically ended in overheating and rising inflation. Since then, prior to the current pandemic-induced downturn, a series of historically long expansions had been more likely to end with episodes of financial instability prompting essential efforts to substantially increase the strength and resilience of the financial system. By the early 2000s, many central banks around the world had adopted a monetary policy framework known as inflation targeting. Although the precise features of inflation targeting differed from country to country, the core framework always articulated an inflation goal, the primary objective of monetary policy. Inflation targeting was also associated with increased communication and transparency designed to clarify the central bank's policy intentions. This emphasis on transparency reflected what was then a new appreciation, that policy is most effective when it is clearly understood by the public. Inflation targeting central banks generally do not focus solely on inflation. Those with flexible inflation targets take into account economic stabilization in addition to their inflation objective. Under Ben Bernanke's leadership, the Federal Reserve adopted many of the features associated with flexible inflation targeting. We made great advances in transparency and communications with the initiation of quarterly press conferences and the summary of economic projections, which comprises the individual economic forecasts of FOMC participants. During that time, then-Board Vice Chair Janet Yellen led an effort on behalf of the FOMC to codify the committee's approach to monetary policy. In January 2012, the committee issued its first Statement on Longer-Run Goals and Monetary Policy Strategy, which we often refer to as the Consensus Statement. A central part of this statement was the articulation of a longer-run inflation goal of 2%. Because the structure of the labor market is strongly influenced by non-monetary factors that can change over time, the committee did not set a numerical objective for maximum employment. However, the statement affirmed the committee's commitment to fulfilling both its congressionally mandated goals. The 2012 statement was a significant milestone, reflecting lessons learned from fighting high inflation, as well as from experience around the world with flexible inflation targeting. The statement largely articulated framework the committee had been following for some time. The completion of the original consensus statement in January 2012 
occurred early on in the recovery from the global financial crisis, when notions of what the new normal might bring were quite uncertain. Since then, our understanding of the economy has evolved in ways that are central to monetary policy. Of course, the conduct of monetary policy has also evolved. A key purpose of our review has been to take stock of the lessons learned over this period and identify any further changes in our monetary policy framework that could enhance our ability to achieve our maximum employment price stability goals in the years ahead. Our evolving understanding of four key economic developments motivated our review. First, assessments of the potential or longer-run growth rate of the economy have declined. For example, since January 2012, the median estimate of potential growth from FOMC participants has fallen from 2.5% to 1.8%. Some slowing growth relative to earlier decades was to be expected, reflecting slowing population growth and the aging of the population. More troubling has been the decline in productivity growth, which is the primary driver of improving living standards over time. Second, the general level of interest rates has fallen both here in the United States and around the world. Estimates of the neutral federal funds rate, which is the rate consistent with the economy operating at full strength and with stable inflation, fallen substantially, in large part reflecting a fall in the equilibrium real interest rate, or R-star. This rate is not affected by monetary policy, but is instead driven by fundamental factors in the economy, including demographics and productivity growth, the same factors that drive potential economic growth. The median estimate from FOMC participants of the neutral funds rate has fallen by nearly half since early 2012, from 4.25% to 2.5%. This decline in assessment of the neutral federal funds rate has profound implications for monetary policy. With interest rates generally running closer to their effective lower bound, even in good times, the Fed has less scope to support the economy during an economic downturn by simply cutting the federal funds rate. The result can be worse economic outcomes in terms of both employment and price stability, with the costs of such outcomes likely falling hardest on those least able to bear Third, and on a happier note, the record-long expansion that ended earlier this year led to the best labor market we had seen in some time. The unemployment rate hovered near 50-year lows for roughly two years, well below most estimates of its sustainable level. And the unemployment rate captures only part of the story. Having declined significantly in the five years following the crisis, the labor force participation rate flattened out and began rising even though the aging of the population suggested keep falling. For individuals in their prime working years, the participation rate fully retraced its post-crisis decline, defying earlier assessments that the global financial crisis might cause permanent structural damage to the labor market. Moreover, moreover as the long expansion continued, the gains began to be shared more widely across society. The black and Hispanic unemployment rates reached record lows, and the differentials between these rates and the white unemployment rate narrowed to their lowest levels on record. As we heard repeatedly in our Fed Listens events, the robust job market was delivering life-changing gains for many individuals, families, and communities, particularly at the lower end of the income spectrum. 
In addition, many who had been left behind for too long were finding jobs, benefiting their families and communities, and increasing the productive capacity of our economy. Before the pandemic, there was every reason to expect that these gains would continue. It is hard to overstate the benefits of a strong labor market, a key national goal that will require a range of policies in addition to supportive monetary policy. Fourth, the historically strong labor market did not trigger a significant rise in inflation. Over the years, forecasts from FOMC participants and private sector analysts routinely showed a return to 2% inflation, but these forecasts were never realized on a sustained basis. Inflation forecasts are typically predicated on the natural rate of unemployment, or U star, and of how much upward pressure on inflation arises when the unemployment rate falls relative to U star. As the unemployment rate moved lower and inflation remained muted, estimates of U star were revised down. For example, the median estimate from FOMC participants declined from 5.5% in 2012 to 4.1% at present. The muted responsiveness of inflation to labor market tightness, which we refer to as the flattening of the Phillips curve, also contributed to low inflation outcomes. In addition, longer-term inflation expectations, which we have long seen as an important driver of actual inflation, and global disinflationary pressures may have been holding down inflation more than was generally anticipated. Other economies have also struggled to achieve their inflation goals in recent decades. The persistent undershoot of inflation from our 2% longer run objective is cause for concern. Many find it counterintuitive that the Fed would want to push inflation up. After all, low and stable inflation is essential for a well-functioning economy. And we are certainly mindful that higher prices for essential items, such as food, gasoline, and shelter, add to the burdens faced by many families, especially those struggling with less jobs and incomes. However, inflation that is persistently too low can pose serious risk of the economy. Inflation that runs below its desired level can lead to an unwelcome fall in longer-term inflation expectations, which in turn can pull actual inflation even lower, resulting in an adverse cycle of ever lower inflation and inflation expectations. This dynamic is a problem because expected inflation feeds directly into the general level of interest rates. Well-anchored inflation expectations are critical for giving the Fed the latitude to support employment when necessary without destabilizing inflation. But if inflation expectations fall below our 2% objective, interest rates would decline in tandem. In turn, we would have less scope to cut interest rates to boost employment during an economic downturn, further diminishing our capacity to stabilize the economy through cutting interest rates. We have seen this adverse dynamic play out in other major economies around the world and have learned that once it sets in, it can be very difficult to overcome. We want to do what we can to prevent such a dynamic from happening here. We began our review with these changes to the economy in mind. The review had three pillars. A series of Fed Listens events held around the country, a flagship research conference, and a series of committee discussions supported by rigorous staff analysis. As is appropriate in our democratic society, 
we have sought extensive engagement with the public throughout the review. The Fed Listens events built on a long-standing practice around the Federal Reserve System of engaging with community groups. The 15 events involved a wide range of participants, workforce development groups, union members, small business owners, residents of low and moderate income communities, retirees, and others, to hear about how our policies affect people's daily lives and livelihoods. The stories we heard at FedListens became a potent vehicle for us to connect with the people and communities that our policies are intended to benefit. One of the clear messages we heard was that the strong labor market that prevailed before the pandemic was generating employment opportunities for many Americans who in the past had not found jobs readily available. A clear takeaway from these events was the importance of achieving and sustaining a strong job market particularly for people from low and moderate income communities. The research conference brought together some of the world's leading academic experts to address topics central to our review. And the presentations and robust discussion we engaged in were an important input to our review process. Finally, the committee explored the range of issues that were brought to light during the course of review in five consecutive meetings beginning in July 2019 analytical staff work put together by teams across the Federal Reserve System <clears throat> provided essential background for each of the committee's discussions. Our plans to conclude the review earlier this year were, like so many things, delayed by the arrival of the pandemic. When we resumed our discussions last month, we turned our attention to distilling the most important lessons of the review in a revised statement on run goals and monetary policy strategy. The federated structure of the Federal Reserve, reflected in the FOMC, ensures that we always have a diverse range of perspectives on monetary policy, and that is certainly the case today. Nonetheless, I am pleased to say that the revised consensus statement was adopted today with the unanimous support of committee participants. Our new consensus statement, like its predecessor, explains how we interpret the mandate Congress has given us and describes the broad framework that we believe will best promote our maximum employment and price stability goals. Before addressing the key changes in our statement, let me highlight some areas of continuity. <clears throat> we continue to believe that specifying a numerical goal for employment is unwise because the maximum level of employment is not directly measurable and changes over time reasons unrelated to monetary policy. The significant shifts in estimates of the natural rate of unemployment over the past decade reinforce this point. In addition, we have not changed our view that a longer-run inflation rate of 2% is most consistent with our mandate to pro promote both maximum employment and price stability. Finally, we continue to believe that monetary policy must be forward-looking, taking into account the expectations of households and businesses and the lags in monetary policy's effect on the economy. Thus, our policy actions continue to depend on the economic outlook, as well as the risks to the outlook, including potential risks to the financial system that could of our goals. The key innovations in our new consensus statement reflect the changes in the economy I described. Our new statement explicitly acknowledges the challenge posed by the proximity of interest rates to the effective lower bound. By reducing our scope to support the economy by cutting interest rates, the lower bound increases downward risks to employment and inflation. 
To counter these risks, we are prepared to use our full range of tools to support the economy. With regard to the employment side of our mandate, our revised statement emphasizes that maximum employment is a broad-based and inclusive goal. This change reflects our appreciation for the benefits of a strong labor market, particularly for many in low and moderate income communities. In addition, our revised statement says that our policy decision will be informed by our assessments of the shortfalls of employment from its maximum level, rather than by deviations from its maximum level, as in our previous statement. This change may appear subtle, but it reflects our view that a robust job market can be sustained without causing an outbreak of inflation. In earlier decades, when the Phillips curve was steeper, inflation tended to rise noticeably in response to a strengthening labor market. It was sometimes appropriate for that to tighten monetary policy as employment rose toward its estimated maximum level in order to stave off an unwelcome rise in inflation. The change to shortfalls clarifies that going forward, employment can run at or real time estimates of its maximum level without causing concern unless accompanied by signs of unwanted increases in inflation or the emergence of other risks that could impede the attainment of our goals. Of course, when employment is below its maximum level, as is so clearly the case now, we will actively seek to minimize that shortfall by using our tools to support economic growth and job creation. <clears throat> we have also made important changes with regard to the price stability side of our mandate. Our longer-run goal continues to be inf an inflation rate of 2%. Our statement emphasizes that our actions to achieve both sides of our dual mandate will be most effective if longer-term inflation expectations remain well anchored at 2%. However, if inflation runs below 2% following economic downturns, but never moves above 2% even when the economy is strong, then, over time, inflation will average less than 2%. Households and businesses will come to expect this result, meaning that inflation expectations would tend to move below our inflation goal and pull realized inflation down. To prevent this outcome and the adverse dynamics that could ensue, our new statement indicates that we will seek to achieve inflation that averages 2% over time. Therefore, following periods when inflation has running below 2%, appropriate monetary policy will likely aim to achieve inflation moderately above 2% for some time. In seeking to achieve inflation at average percent over time, we are not tying ourselves to a particular mathematical formula that defines the average. Thus, our approach, approach could be viewed as a flexible form of average inflation targeting. Our decisions about appropriate monetary policy will continue to reflect a broad array of considerations and will not be dictated by any formula. <clears throat> of course, if excessive inflationary pressures were to build or inflation expectations were to ratchet above levels consistent with our goal, we would not hesitate to act. The revisions to our statement add up to a robust updating of our monetary policy framework. To an extent, these revisions reflect the way we have been conducting policy in recent years. At the same time, however, there are some important new features. Overall, our new statement on longer-run goals and monetary policy strategy conveys our continued strong commitment to achieving our goals 
given the difficult challenges presented by the proximity of interest rates to the effective lower band. In conducting monetary policy, we will remain highly focused on fostering as strong a labor market as possible for the benefit of all Americans. And we will steadfastly seek to achieve a 2% inflation rate over time. Our review has provided a platform for productive discussion and engagement with the public we serve. The Fed Listens events helped us connect with our core constituency, the American people, and hear directly how their everyday lives are affected policies. We believe that conducting a review at regular intervals is a good institutional practice, providing valuable feedback and enhancing transparency and accountability. And with the ever-changing economy, future reviews will allow us to take a step back, reflect on what we've learned, and adapt our practices as we strive to achieve our dual mandate goals. As our statement indicates, we plan to undertake a thorough public review of our monetary policy strategy, tools, and communication practices roughly every five years. Thank you very much. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. And thank you, Chair Powell. That is the Fed Chair, uh, as expected, announcing that the Fed has unanimously uh, approved a new strategy to target inflation as an average over time. Looking for 2%, uh, Steve Leisman putting an emphasis on something he's talked about for a very long time, and that is the benefit of broad and inclusive employment, as he put it. Yeah, Carl, this is an historic uh, move by the Fed. First of all, just a little background here. We didn't expect this statement from the full FOMC until September. The Federal Reserve moved this up for reasons that are not clear, I guess, to coincide with the speech where Powell was going to talk about this. Um, but this is an historic change where the Fed, uh, just to give you some of the context here, Bernanke implemented the 2% inflation target. Since that happened, I believe in 2012, the Federal Reserve has not really hit that 2% inflation target. So Powell's come forward and said, well, what do we do about consistently missing our goal? The Federal Reserve now saying, I think a couple things are really significant here. One is it will allow, it's looking to average inflation over time. And that means if you have a period of persistently low inflation, that means we'll allow it to run moderately above 2% for some time until you hit that average. The second thing I want to emphasize here is a, they're codifying or putting into the statement here this idea, which is really, I guess, uh, repudiating decades of, of, of economic thought that maximum employment does not lead to inflation. We should not aim for this uh, unachievable or unknowable goal of maximum employment. We should do everything we can to bring max to bring unemployment down, and that we should ultimately not be too concerned about high inflation. 
and low on him. Steve, we'll, conti- we'll continue this discussion in a moment as uh, we get the opening bell here. Futures did move higher on uh, Powell's presentation. You saw gold spike as well, uh, almost $30. At the NYSE today celebrating an IPO, it's Xpong Motors. We'll talk to the president of the Chinese electric car maker in about an hour. Um, Steve, already some reaction from some that they are, uh, I don't know, what's, what's the right word? Uh, de-emphasizing their mandate for stable money in favor of employment? I think one way to put this, Carl, is a, a decline in hubris. And I'll say that, that, you know, Powell has been a bit of a skeptic of the whole idea of the ability of the Fed to know certain things, maximum employment and the right neutral interest rate. And if you listen to his speech, he said, he didn't say this outright, but he said, hey, we've gotten this wrong for a long time. And so what we want to do is, hey, we've seen the benefits of maximum employment. We've seen what it's meant for communities, for low-income communities, for the whole nation here to have very low unemployment. That's a risk worth taking, that if we have somewhat high or higher inflation or that we can tell people we're not going to pull the trigger or take away the punch bowl quite so quickly, that's a risk worth taking. I'm not sure that that, that's exactly the right way to describe what you just said there, Carl, that but ultimately, I think he's saying we we're going to take a step back here. We're not going to be so formulaic about this idea. We're going to let it run a little bit hot if there are benefits. Hmm. Steve, we're going to talk about it all day uh, with your help. Uh, thank you. Uh, we'll say goodbye for the moment as we look at a new record high on the S&P, a new record high on the NASDAQ. Uh, Jim, let's just get your thoughts. Look, I, I think anything that makes it so that you take the Fed out of the equation for a while, particularly some of the Uh, people who are on the Fed who like to come on air and say things that move the market, I think I can now, frankly, almost ignore them because Powell has laid down the law. These guys can say whatever they want, but what we're going to do is we're going to let things run and we're not going to be part of the equation until the economy actually does even better than we think. And what a great thing. Now we're just actually looking at how companies are doing and we're not worried about what the Fed's going to do. Obviously, we have an election. That's going to matter. But I I, I totally agree with Steve. This is incredible. He basically said, hey, guys, just go, go get the economy back. I'll have your back. I am not going to get in the way of it. And it was also really uh, Chairman Powell. I mean, these other people didn't sound like, you know, we've sat down and we've decided what to do. No, he basically just said, "Okay, this is it. Lay down the law. These other guys can yap all they want. But they're not determining a thing, Carl. Jay Powell is on the side of the bulls. He did say, Jim, uh, we will not hesitate to act if inflation rises above levels consistent with our goal. Well, good I mean, luck. I guess he's got that in his back pocket. Right. But I, I think he's also willing to let it run. Uh, look, I think the whole time Jay Powell has. Uh, no, not the whole time. Initially. There was a period where he came in and he was going to talk shows saying how he had to tighten, tighten, tighten. The staff was doing that. A lot of journalists were pushing him, hedge funds. And then he became his own man. And once he became his own man, he realized all those guys just don't have any heart. And what matters is to have a heart to let the economy, let the working person do well. And now he's on the side of the working person again. I think he's done a remarkable job. He's not listening to people who say, you better start worrying about inflation now. He's looking at about employment and realizing, you know what, we got to be sure that we don't go back into a depression after we've had some nice comeback. David, I don't know. To me, he says, don't you have to worry about me anymore? Well, let it overshoot. Why don't you guys focus on what what really matters? Maybe that's too simplistic, but I like that. Well, does it? Does it lend, though, 
Jim, a um, or continue the speculative tone in this market? Yes. I mean, given that I guess it's going to yes. be uh, low yields forever, low, zero, bound forever, practically, is what it kind of feels like. I mean, that wouldn't seem to do anything but add fuel to the fire. I, I totally agree. I mean, that's he basically said, listen, I'm not going to give you any any yield. I mean, look at all these companies. They do these bond deals at one point three percent junk. Junk is, is, is like two for a five year. And I just say, yeah, I mean, game one for the speculators. This is it's it's his Robin Hood speech. He's taking from the rich and giving to the young people who have two hundred dollars in their pocket. David, it's going. Yeah, that way. Guess, make it right. sound he like- is penalizing. Penalizing savers continues to do that, yes. though, right? I mean, who cannot find a return anywhere except perhaps the stock market, to your point, when you have 10-year junk paper trading at 285 when it's an issued. Uh, it's, it's stunning. How about when the government has to raise all this money? Carl, the government's going to have to issue more debt than ever in the month of uh, September. August, obviously, it didn't matter to people. Uh, we used to sit there and look at the long bond and said, if it really goes up, you got to sell these high multiple stocks. But I don't think the Robin Hood people, when I mentioned that, I mean, these are people with money in their hands who actually take action. They don't understand that relation. They haven't read the Sydney Homer Inside the Yield Curve book, the 500-page book that David Darsh used to make us read. I think they're not really focused on the yield curve. I think they're focused on finding the next electronic vehicle stock or buying Tesla. You know, the buy Tesla, oh, I mean, there must be some piece of paper you get if you're under 25. Fed speaks by Tesla. It, 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 it's like unbelievable. <laughs> it, there's just, Carl, I've never seen anything like it. It's like, hey, how's, it, how's the weather out? Oh, it's rainy. Oh, buy Tesla. Buy Tesla. Right, right. Buy Tesla. Jim, you make it sound like it's a strategy that only a Fed chair who's not an economist could have announced, right? I mean, it's, it's the inverse of... Uh, it's the inverse of Volcker in some ways, oh, the inverse well, of guys. Uh, Bernanke and Yellen, as, as Leesman said. He's just saying, look, I don't want to. I'm not hurting people. This is a terrible economy. It's nobody's fault. I'm not going to be in the way. Uh, he's not saying party only. He says, look, I'm not going to hurt people. And that is not what an economist says. The economist says, well, the, the data says I've got to do this. He's not ruled by he doesn't want to be ruled short term by data. Carl, uh, Carl, he doesn't want to be ruled short term by data because it's awful. I mean, look at, I mean, we, we're celebrating 10% unemployment. I mean, it was at 3.6. Let's put people to work. He doesn't want to get in the way of that. Yeah, indeed. Guys, um, really quick, um, we've been talking about, uh, to the extent we can, the departure of Kevin Mayer from TikTok. And now some breaking news on that from our Julia Borston. Good morning, Julia. Good morning to you, Carl. Yes, I've been talking to sources, and one source close to the situation tells me that one reason that Kevin Mayer announced he is stepping down now is that he was excluded from the negotiations with Microsoft and Oracle. The negotiations with Microsoft, I'm told, were being led by ByteDance CEO uh, Zhang Yiming, while the Oracle conversations were being led by General Atlantic CEO Bill Ford, with Yiming participating in those conversations. Now, ask the question of why my mayor was not involved in those negotiations. I'm told it's because TikTok and ByteDance had a relationship with Microsoft before Mayer came on board. That TikTok's servers, of uh, TikTok's cloud provider is currently Google. And I'm told that uh, that um, that TikTok was having conversations and Yi Ming was having conversations with Microsoft about switching over to have Microsoft be their cloud provider. After Kevin Mayer came on board, of course, it was then that these talks shifted 
from having a sort of a contractual agreement with them towards the conversation about having a sale, but that mayor was not brought into those conversations. And Carl, I'm told by multiple sources that mayor wanted to run a large, powerful company and not be uh, running a division that was a part of a large tech company, such as it would turn out to be, should TikTok be bought by Microsoft? And that if TikTok had been bought out by a group of investors, which was one conversation that was um, being held at one point in this, it does not seem like that's going to be the case. Now, had that been the case, had this been an investor buyout, then Mayer's role would be much larger. But the fact that he's stepping now does indicate that we're likely to see a deal with a Microsoft or an Oracle, more likely Microsoft. And that deal could come in the next 48 hours or so. Guys. Interesting. I was going to ask you, and I'm sure David wants to jump in here as well, uh, the part of his statement, Julia, where he said, we expect to reach a resolution very soon, uh, sort of ties into what you just said. Absolutely. I think that we could see a deal imminent, imminently. And I do think this really indicates that this is not this going to be a situation where it's a group of investors buying out the company. We are very much likely to see a big tech company buy TikTok. And that's precisely why Kevin Mayer did not want to stay. He did not leave Disney in order to be running a small division at Microsoft. And in fact, I'm told by some sources that the fact that he's leaving now, rather than deciding to go remain CEO, COO of ByteDance, remember ByteDance is not allowed to operate either in India or in the U.S., by leaving now, it leaves more doors open for him to return to any other kind of media or tech company here in the U.S. down the road. Yeah, Julia, it's David. I mean, I, you know, I think, again, given everything you're saying and certainly what I've been hearing over the last few weeks when it became clear that this was going to likely be a sale to another company, that Mr. Mayer was not prepared to stay on, uh, as you say, if in fact it had been a group of investors where he would then become the CEO of TikTok USA, perhaps different. But at the same time, and you've helped clarify this a bit, um, it was curious as to why now. Uh, because I'd, I'd been hearing different things in terms of his potential role, especially given his history in M&A. As you know, he was very much involved, for example, in Disney's talks with Fox, uh, that he was involved here, that he had been designated by Yi Ming to at least help the process along, that he may, in fact, even have been helpful in getting Oracle uh, to the table to create another bidder here, which is obviously very helpful for ByteDance, which is going to be forced to essentially sell this this asset. Um, so it was somewhat curious for me that he would choose to leave now, not even on the announcement yeah. of perhaps a buyer, which could be, as you say, very soon. I'm, my understanding, and it seems to be the same as your reporting, is that uh, by the end of this week, they will go exclusive with either Microsoft or Oracle. They are sticking with that September 15th deadline, even though it's become somewhat unclear given the executive order that followed that, that might actually extend it. They're sticking with September 15th as a date by which they want to announce who the buyer of this business is going to be. So I did expect him to hang around at least perhaps until then. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 being excluded from the talks would seem to indicate perhaps that it was just enough for him at this point to say, see well, you I, later and you let me focus very, on other opportunities. Yeah. But, David, you make a really good point. At Disney, Kevin Mayer was the deal maker. He was really involved in shaping the transformation of Disney with so many different major deals over the course of his time there. 
Fox obviously being the biggest one. So I think he went from being the leader of the deal talks at Disney to being not the leader of the deal talks in this TikTok situation. So he may have been involved in the conversations. The fact that he does have relationships with so many business leaders here in the U.S. is certainly a huge advantage for, for ByteDance in those talks. But what I'm told, though, is that he was not leading those talks. And because Yi Meng, ByteDance's CEO, CEO, did have a pre-existing relationship with Microsoft, he was really the one who was running those deal talks with Microsoft, and Mayer was not. And I think the fact that he was not the one who, Kevin Mayer was not the one who got to make the decision about whether or not uh, TikTok was going to be bought out by an investor group, which would have been far more beneficial for him and his potential role in the company. I think the fact that he was he was not the leader of them really ended up driving his decision to especially leave now, um, you know, in anticipation of a deal being announced shortly. Yeah, Julia, my work says that uh, this date, hard date, September 15, that this man wants to wanted to have a big IPO, hoping to become a company, a leader of a gigantic entertainment company that destroyed the world and not going to happen, go back to L.A., come up with something new. But what I'm intrigued by is is that does this cut in favor of uh, Microsoft? I say that because with Oracle, you might have had an investment group that was going to play a very big role because Oracle could only apparently buy about 20 percent. That's all they wanted to do. It looks like the investment group was going to buy about 80. Doesn't this just say basically that it's going to go back to Microsoft, even though I know that the investment group wants a competition? I think I think that's what it would indicate, um, Jim. I mean, what I'm hearing is sort of the same thing. I mean, the truth is, is that Microsoft has a lot of different divisions. They own Skype. They have video gaming assets. They have LinkedIn. So TikTok would be one small division, which would have some overlap. You know, LinkedIn sells advertising. TikTok sells advertising. And it would need to fit into the way Microsoft operates. And you would want to have synergies and, and cross-pollination across those various Microsoft divisions. At Oracle, it would really be a separate thing. And I think that Kevin Mayer would have had a huge amount of independence or a lot more independence running um, TikTok as part of Oracle than he would have had running TikTok as part of Microsoft. So the fact that we know that he would want to have the the most independence possible does indicate to me that this is a deal that's more likely to go to Microsoft. Julia, thanks for that. Uh, great stuff as we continue to try to make sense of the departure. Uh, after only three months, Kevin Mayer from TikTok. That's our Julia Borston. Just about 14 points away, Jim, from uh, S&P 3500. You got airlines, hotels, cruise lines leading. You think this is about the Abbott test? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that we are underestimating the power of this Abbott deal. There are a lot of people I think just don't really understand What's going on? What's meant to be? If you have 50 million tests minimum in the month of October, say, and maybe even more than that, what they're basically saying is you're going. I got. I downloaded the app, and the app is very easy. It, it took me. I don't know. It, it, it took me. I don't know, about three minutes to download the app, and it's called Navica. And what you do is you just you, you get it. Uh, it's right in the app store. And w- what you do is you find out in 15 minutes where they have it. And you have it. Uh, then you're not getting on the plane. If you don't, then you're on the plane. How can you not right. buy United mm-hmm. Air? How can you not buy S- Southwest? How can you not buy Delta? And yes, even uh, lowly worm American. I say that because they got the really bad balance sheet. Uh, I think Navica is the game changer for travel. And it may be the game changer for school. I wish it had come out earlier but, but- to help more school people. Yeah, well, li- listen, I mean, that, that could be a key. Although, again, Jim, you do need to be swabbed by a healthcare professional. You can't do it. It's not a do it yourself. No, not yet. The FDA made it so you have to go to like a CVS clinic or something. CVS, right. such a dog stock. Right. I wish my trust didn't own it so much. 
But you know, look, I think that that's the initial <laughs> gating factor. But look, there's you can you, you there's the only thing that's open in New York City are like the fifty thousand mini clinics, and you can go to any drugstore and there's a mini clinic, and so just go get it. I mean, I'm going to probably get get tested yeah. as much as often as I can. I'd like to travel again. Wouldn't that be fun? Like go somewhere. I mean, kind of just like uh, it's hard to imagine. Well, what was yeah, it you like? can get in your car and go somewhere, but yeah. I don't remember. I don't I either. Don't. I remember just so being like, things. yeah, you know, just kind of cool. Carl, it's the it's the it game changer. It, the market it, doesn't. The market is loath to admit it. I think, um, but you know. well, guys, speaking I mean, of Jim, can you blame them? Because we've been we've been heartbroken before. Yes. When it comes to convenient testing, and there you go. Um, and I, and yeah, that, I agree. If, if if what you're saying is true. What what does that mean for Meadows and Pelosi apparently talking this afternoon, uh, as Politico says? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I wish it were kind of Secretary Mnuchin in there, too. Uh, the skinny deal, I, guess I don't my, know what's going to happen. Do, I mean, I guess, I, is yeah. is the need for any further assistance, support, stimulus diminished because of the promise of this test? Well, I don't think any. I think that your uh, correct skepticism, because we've had short, we've had tests, rapid tests did more before, uh, because they didn't have enough, because they gave you too many wrong readings, uh, is make it so that I don't think anyone initially trusts the test. Why do I trust the test? I don't know. I believe in Mr. Ford and Mr. White, Miles White, uh, who ran Abbott Labs. Uh, I have faith. I know that some people were let down by their rapid test before, so no. I don't think people, I think people are just too skeptical. And in the meantime, you've got 15 million people who don't. Don't really have uh, have questionable employment. This would make it so that you could go to a game, you could go to the airport, you could get somewhere. All the things that, that we really care about, I think, in terms of getting out of our homes. But it, it doesn't solve the, the the unemployment problem yet. And for instance, if you own a restaurant no, in New well, York, you're, you're still trying gonna, to figure out if you can yeah. have a restaurant. I mean, it's not fun to have a business, but being told by a mayor, David, I know that you know the mayor it, by reputation, <laughs> who just says, "Look, here's my policy. I have no policy." Well, so like. All the employees that we have, we, we try to tell them that we're going to one day we're going to open. It's going to be dynamite. <laughs> what yeah. a world. Uh, I, although I, it's not clear to me that you'd be able to use this. I mean, you're not going to have people wait. What, you're going to have them wait in line and test them. And I'm not quite sure. No, I no, you that. bring your QSR. How it's gonna... It's a QSR. And I scan right. you. You don't wait. Oh, and you show that you are. You show that you just. I see. Right. You, you show that you, let me just, see your QSR. you just passed your test. Yeah. And the, the, uh, okay, that's, I understand. Yeah, you get to yeah. download it. Navica, it's easy to download. Do you right. download, David? You buy things on the store? Um, you ever buy? I mean, yeah, you ever, yeah. can you ever I, see these I, cool I, things? I, they're, they're, yeah. they're called apps. Yeah, I, face yeah I'm, a, I'm somewhat familiar with them. They keep showing up on my phone. I don't yeah, know they blow up your they phone. Are. But Navica is the answer. I downloaded it. It took four minutes, yeah. and, my, and my fingers are clumsy. But now I, I'm going, and I'm going to have my QSR. Understood. Understood. And this thing is very big. But, Carl, you're right. We have been this has been a boy who cried wolf. You go out and say, well, this time it works. And the saliva test works. And they were bioreference labs. And then 77 um, NFL guys. Every it's been a heartbreak, heartbreak, heartbreak. But I I got the app. Have Apple travel. Um, uh, listen, if it does actually uh, promote travel, perhaps the name like Tiffany, which I wanted to get to, guys, because it did report earnings this morning, will benefit, of course, Tiffany in the U.S. to a certain extent and not an insignificant one relying on tourists, for example, certainly at the flagship store, which remains uh, closed because they're renovating it and changing it all uh, on Fifth Avenue there on 57th Street. But uh, they did report numbers, Jim. You talked about this name a couple of days ago when I was reporting, of course, on the continued 
a desire on the part of the buyer, LVMH, to potentially pay a lower price. I think that is something that, uh, again, I will continue to say is something they would like to do. There is something called a contract. There's something called a material adverse change clause. They would actually need to find something that would allow them to find a wedge in which they could at least claim a MAC. That remains very much unclear. And the numbers, at least from Tiffany's perspective, will say, hey, we're not we're not doing any worse. In fact, we're doing better than a lot of our competitors. Yes, of course, sales down 44 percent. E-commerce up, although as a percentage overall at 15 percent. Remember, the denominator, the base is lower, the overall sales number, but it's moving up uh, fairly dramatically in terms of e-commerce. And China is rebounding quite strongly, as we know. The question still remains, Jim, as to the viability of this asset over a longer period of time, given the decline in the mall, given all the changes that have taken place in terms of behaviors uh, from the pandemic that conceivably will continue into the very long, uh, into the future, period, and whether or not this asset's anywhere near worth 135 if it were on the market today and somebody wanted to buy it. I, I agree. And I look at it, I'm thinking about Taubman and Simon Properties. I mean, Tiffany is mall based. And if it's in the mall, it's not as good. But then again, Gap Store suddenly comes alive. L Brands comes alive. And they could say, look, we're the greatest China play in the world. Look at our China numbers. You know, last night, my, uh, Mike Rome from, uh, you know, we, we have, we have, uh, I trip M on, and Mike Rome was saying China is terrific. You know, so you could say, listen, I want, if you can't break the deal. China's great. It's kind of like the Microsoft uh, to buy TikTok deal. It's in 48 hours. Yeah, we'll see. We'll yeah. see. Uh, that's that's going to be interesting. Uh, on, but again, I mean, Yi Ming is this. He's the owner. Of, he's the founder of owner of ByteDance. He's 36 years old. Of course, he's going to run the process. Right. Uh, there's no doubt about that. How you actually figure in on TikTok, your other potential buyers who are also owners of ByteDance who want to roll into TikTok USA, conceivably with Oracle, I think remains somewhat of a complexity, particularly because they're sort of playing both sides here. They want as high a bid as possible, obviously, to maximize the potential. Right. For bite dance and their ownership well, there. Well, it doesn't sound like the cats have to speak uh, uh, now or forever hold her peace, the CEO of Oracle. I don't she has know. to come out tonight. She does. She has, during the president's speech. Well, why? Well, because this, this is a juggernaut. Why? This thing's a juggernaut. It's happening. What? What? TikTok's a juggernaut. Yeah. I mean, at the se- yeah. September 14th deadline, that's actually not that far. I mean, the president wants it now, no, basically, right? Two weeks away. No? Apparently. Apparently, as we know, yeah. I think it's so good if Microsoft gets it. It's a steal. I like what Facebook's doing with this new. They are. You know, they have a competitive product. Of course, Mark Zuckerberg's competitive product, uh, which is Insta Reels. So we're gonna have to go on Insta Reels yes. and dumb that down. You know, David, when you watched, I don't. Hey, Carl, you look at TikTok because I've never felt like I was a member of Mensa or, uh, and spent some time on TikTok. No, but I see Lindsey Graham was quoted in Vanity Fair uh, recalling the time he told the president. If you shut this down, uh, you're going to get kicked in the you-know-what by a bunch of young people. Uh, and that certainly fits the demographic that we know about TikTok. Young Guys, people. The, the banks are charging. Uh, How uh, do you like the that? Banks are up 1.5% uh, as yields have flipped. Let's get to Rick Santelli. Rick? Yes, everything's had big U-turns, Carl. Look at an intraday of 10s. The first response, we dropped down to 64 basis points. 
People were buying. Now they're reversing course. And when you reverse course, you usually end up taking a bit of a loss. Not only have we gone back to that 68, 69 level, we shot up towards 71. If you look at Boone's, maybe you get a little bit more perspective. They're virtually right where they were before Chairman Powell started to speak. And finally, the dollar index almost exactly where it was before he started to speak and actually starting to firm a bit. The interesting one, of course, is gold because Many could say, well, it was thinking about inflation, but boy, that's just a, a whisper of what it thinks about when you consider uh, where gold was in 1980 and where it was for 12 years after that. It's hard to make the inflation argument. It's the nervous about fiat money argument, and that I do understand, especially looking at where the dollar index traded versus gold. Finally, if we consider all the issues that Jay Paul brought up, I walk away with one overriding notion, and that is the correlation between globalism and low inflation. China, countries like China exported us low inflation. We exported us, them, their our many jobs, uh, outsourcing, cheap labor became the rule, all the supply chains. But as globalism reverses and we see some of the dark issues of globalism, prices follow. The big drops aren't coming. 2012, uh, the chairman said, was the new recovery. That's when Mr. Bernanke, chairman at the time, decided 2% was the rate that they would follow. But they didn't tighten rates till the end of 2015, so they kind of ignored the new recovery. And Jay Powell's smart enough to realize that inflation never did anything during globalism, and now he's a little nervous between the contraction there and what may lie ahead after COVID. So why not drop that, let it run a little bit, and let's see what happens. Steve Leisman was right. There's not a lot of hubris with this chairman. He seems to be a middle-of-the-road honest guy about the fact that they have no idea what prices are going to do or any level of unemployment or employment considered to be full. Carl, Jim, David, back to you. Okay, and I will take it. Thank you, Rick Santelli. With the bond report, well, still to come right here, we're going to talk about the economy and the 2020 election. Yes, Quibi CEO Meg Whitman, longtime Republican, of course, ran for governor of California, supporting Joe Biden for president. Hear what she has to say about his economic plan and a lot more. Stay with us. Let's get to Jim and stop trading. You know, I was out uh, last night at a socially distant uh, party outside in New Jersey to celebrate my friend Michael Haley's 50th birthday. And we all said we're not going to restaurants. None of us going to restaurants. Well, sure enough, today, Darden, Stephen says, wait a second. They're going to be starting to go to restaurants very heavily. Well, this is Olive Garden, by the way. And this is the time to buy it, even though the numbers are down 27 percent. Next year, they think plus seven. People are going to be going out all they want. So time to get along the restaurants. I don't know. I think it's premature. But that call is sticking and working today. Uh, indeed, Jim. Wow. Uh, yeah. A lot of uh, the classic services that have been hobbled by COVID doing well this morning. Yes. What do you got tonight? Yeah, because they got the app. All right. Tonight, I've got Williams-Sonoma stock down. I think that's a mistake. It was a really good quarter. There were some shipping issues. Not really. Uh, I, I think it's by Splunk. Unbelievable quarter almost. Now it's about half cloud. Uh, uh, David's friend, Enrique Lores from uh, HP. We've got to find out how they're doing. And then uh, uh, Neil Bushry, David's friend from Workday, so, uh, which is, of course, a great cloud company. It's up. And, and David, I've, I'm encircling you. I've got all your friends. I let Meg Whitman be on your show, but that's okay. Thank you. Jimmy Chuck. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and are my are my children living with you as well at this point? No, I mean, but what Mark else Benio you says say? hi. And I say hi right back. All right, then. we're going right to set them patch that thing up now that he's fifty billion dollars. I cannot wait. Yeah. Wow. Well, guys, what a show! I mean, we handled everything, right? I mean, didn't we?
kind of. We got to just care. about everything, uh, Jim. Yeah, we, 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 you know, we didn't really cover NBA much at all no. uh, and the impact on uh, the Disney's and DraftKings of the world. But um, we'll learn more today, we think, as some of uh, the management yeah. and ownership, stru- ownership structure uh, meets and tries to figure yeah. out a response from here. Uh, One thing Microsoft last night on our reporting. Wow. I mean, again, that's that same nutty thing. Abate points, but no, nothing confirmed. I leave you guys with the mystery and the enigma of this market. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.